Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. My book today is a textured tapestry, so to speak, of images and ideas. It is Alec Patrich's Atlantic Black. So, Alec, once again, welcome back to 3CR. Oh, it's so good to be here again, David. I mean, this is a tradition almost now. <laughs> we, we must preserve it as a tradition. Unfortunately, we can't claim we've discovered Alec, but uh, we interviewed him about Black Rock White City before it won the Miles Franklin and all this sort of thing. So, you know, we're, we're sort of up there. We're sort of up there. But with this latest book, I'm going to start by saying I'm completely at sea. Um, can you establish the context for us with uh, the Aquitania and Katerina on the Atlantic for me, please? Sure. Well, um, the whole novel takes place in a 24-hour period. Um, it's set on an ocean liner called the Aquitania. The Aquitania is crossing the Atlantic Ocean. It's roughly you know, halfway across from Mexico to Calais in France. And um, as most people would know, 1939, New Year's Eve, it's the precipice of the Second World War. Perhaps the greatest catastrophe our species ever, well, produced, you know. So it's on that, the cusp of that catastrophe. Um, and I'm, it's from the perspective of this 17-year-old 17, 17 girl who is also part of an ambassadorial family. So a perspective on... The world and those events aren't um, abstract. Well, that forms the backdrop, but the actual voyage in many ways is an allegory. Am I correct there? For life, um, for, and, and Katerina lives her life again, uh, so to speak. So it's not just her experiences over those two days. It's really a reflection on her life to that point in time. She's leading her whole life in those two days. Yeah, sure. Well, I hesitate to um, use the word allegory, although that is that is definitely um, an aspect of the book because as a writer, what you, tr- what you try to do is fundamentally and firstly create a story that works just as a story with vibrant characters that feel real, that have, you know, a sense of place in, in that world, that you've detailed that world so that it feels, you know, there's an atmosphere to it and it feels real. So that's your primary focus. Then as you sort of develop a book, then you're looking to tease out those metaphorical elements, those levels of symbolism that will perhaps um, give you give a reader you know, just more depth to a, to a story. Mm. Well, basically, we've got the Aquitania on the Atlantic um, and we've got a steel skyscraper laid horizontally for those who have only ever moved in and out of houses mm. of wood. And then this is immediately contrasted with a letter from uh, Katerina's brother, Cornell, uh, my next goal must be to find a way to shrink life down to a world again. So you've got this image of the world contained in the Aquitania, mm-hmm. but also then of containing one's experiences in a world, so mm-hmm. to speak. 
and the juxtaposition of ideas. Yeah. There's a lot of fascinating um, ideas you've just opened up there. You know, someone said to me, one of my editors, um, when I was editor friends, you know, was, was saying that uh, the Aquitania and, like, um, ocean liners can often be considered to be microcosms of the world. And I said to her, yeah, so, so, can, a, so can a family. And in this case, in this particular family, we're very much a microcosm of a larger world. But in terms of compartmentalised lives, we all live these kinds of small lives that are engaging and coming into contact. They're kind of like, you know, bubbles. Well, this is where so, we get, um, you've got a, a quote from David Malouf. we inhabit a world of unfinished stories and we occasionally see into the cabins through the doorways and such like of lives being lead, mm-hmm. etc. And Katerina occasionally goes into these. But I'll read the opening here, and it may give the listener a sense of what you're actually doing. Katerina Clover walks out onto the sun deck. The air is sharp enough to force a lightly dressed passenger back into the soft warmth of the interior. The porthole glimpses she had coming up from one of the low- lowest points on the Aquitania allowed her to hope for pleasant sunshine. The weather yesterday was brilliant, She saw flying fish in the afternoon at the prow of the liner, their sleek silver bodies skimming and lifting into the air, often 200 metres or more, before diving back down into the water, easily outpacing the ship at full speed. Her mother remarked that it must be an incredible liberation to break free of ocean depths and find that kind of drift through the air, scattering the weight of water in droplets floating over the face of the waters, and used that expression, and it reminds Katerina now of the first verse of the Bible about how the earth was without form and void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Then there's the fellow wearing a lilac felt fedora said those flying fish wouldn't fly at all if they weren't trying to evade a predator below the water, eager to eat them up like sardines. And this is a metaphor for the lives we're leading? Well, the lives we're living just have sometimes that appearance of beauty or grace. And then we can often find that um, underneath those appearances, there's something a little bit uh, less pleasant. It's an incredibly dark vision if you look at it like that. What's below the surface, I suppose. But is that what you're suggesting then about life by layering these images? Because we have the world, the Aquitania, but it's on a vast ocean and like the flying fish, are we about to plunge into the depths again? Yeah, well, you know, one one of the major inspirations for this book... Well, while there are many literary inspirations, one of the major ones was Stanley Kubrick and his films. Um, and I think, you know, there was Clockwork Orange significantly, Dr. Strangelove as well. There was that sort of sense of being on the verge of a catastrophe in Dr. Strangelove. It wasn't really necessarily about the, the, the Third World War, the possibilities of that. That was, that was certainly like the literal elements of it. But just that verge of catastrophe was significant to me, especially going into this book, because I really wasn't trying to write about the Second World War. What I was really trying to write about was the verge of catastrophe that we feel right now. Because a writer has to respond to living impulses that are coming through him or her. And that's really what I was you know, responding to, that sense that we're 
at the verge of a waterfall from which there's no coming back. Well, rather than it being in an historical context, could it be that we're always living our lives like that? As you say, the moments of grace, the flying fish, beauty, but it's ephemeral Mm. in many ways, uh, rather than it being, uh, you know, a cataclysm about to uh, manifest itself. But you've also got a range of other images. I mean, just in what I've written, life, death, water, biblical imagery, references to to texts, and this happens all the way through the book. Mm -hmm. My question is, how do you keep it all balanced in your mind when you're writing it? Uh, Well, I I think that uh, what we do is give our... Consciously, we construct uh, a kind of frame within which we invite ourselves to our deeper selves to come out and play and um, that's the only way to get something that feels not manufactured not artificial but actually feels part of you know um, something more living and something a little bit more necessary to perhaps you and the world that you're communicating with Um, We've got Katerina then re-experiencing her life in many ways over those two days through her encounters on the ship, through letters she finds from her brother that were kept from her. And this is sort of providing the narrative force that compels the novel because Mm. we're trying to work out what happened to her father Mm -hmm. and such like. And what's happening to her her brother, who we find out early on is um, on the verge of suicide. Um, so it's a fairly critical situation for her brother in Europe, for her father in Europe, whose career is obviously collapsing. But also her mother? And has... her mother's disintegration into a sort of catatonic state um, after a psychotic break. So she, as a 17-year-old girl, is in a very precarious situation. But you've got her virtually leading her life again. I mean, one of the first images, she's picking up her mother's handbag. She's wearing Mm. her mother's stole, Mm -hmm. which is what a child would do in many ways as they're developing. But these encounters become a bit darker as... Yeah, it's it's very it's a very dark novel. Uh, hence the title, Atlantic, Atlantic Black. Black. Um, I really was trying to um, explore tragedy. You know, it's often something that we flinch from. But um, I remember watching just a Woody Allen film, Blue Jasmine, and at the end of that, with Kate Blanchett sitting on the bench, I was shocked that Woody Allen had really gone the full tragedy. He hadn't flinched, and that becomes really appealing to me. I mean. There's a kind of darkness that I think is kind of grotesque or self-indulgent in which we just simply are looking for sensationalist sort of elements. But then there's also the possibility that to go through to a real darkness is the possibility of finding a kind of X-ray light that allows us to see in places that we otherwise wouldn't have access to, that we wouldn't be able to. It's a cure for blindness. They're they're very conceivable things. I mean, there's opium. She sort of makes a Mm -hmm. choice and experiments with that. There's the New Year's Eve party, which in many ways is very confronting. And so it forces uh, over which she has control and makes decisions, Mm. forces around her, social forces in many ways, impinging on her and her sexuality and and things like this, Mm. which is what everybody goes through yeah. in life. Well, I, I did a bit of research just because I was going to use opium. I've never used opium. I, you know, I looked at uh, confessions of a, an opium eater 
uh, by De Quincey, and I found that, uh, you know, I thought it was some kind of hedonistic sort of work about the joys of opium. But one of the things he points out pretty much immediately is that this was an answer to pain. For, for many people, this is pre, you know, panadine and the various kinds of things that we have for pain. So people were using it for pain. And then I talked to a nurse who'd been dealing with youth who read the book um, in, in manuscript form. And she found that a lot of the times with youth that are experimenting or using drugs, really they're not looking for some kind of thrill. They're looking for some answer to pain that they can't resolve in any way. Mm. How do I deal with this? You know, how do I, and how do I cope, you know? Yeah. As we as we've already talked about with um, Katerina Clover, she's living in a, in a disintegrating world. Yeah, and and her parents are gone, brother, etc. So she's got to survive and make decisions for herself. Mm. I mean, they used to give laudanum to babies uh, to keep them quiet in the Victorian era, sure. which was basically opium until they worked it out. Mm. You've also got references to literature all the way through, some unknown works that were unknown to me, but others as well. Uh, there's also the book of Job that, that are referenced. Yeah. So your predilection for certain authors comes through there? Um, you know, like I, I mentioned um, Antal Zerb at one point, and I had a friend who said, you must love Antal Zerb. And I said, no, I, I don't love Antal Zerb. He's not one of my heroes. It wasn't because of that. Antal Zerb was um, a Jewish writer who converted to Catholicism way before the Third Reich came into control of his part of Europe. And yet he was still killed a few years after the, the Second World War started. And to me, the choice of Antal Zerb was more about that aspect and also the way he in one particular photo just seemed to be poised himself on the verge of of both immensely hopeful and his his future starting and in the next moment you know that just in a few years from now that future is just going to be wasted my last question really is in terms of how you want the reader to interact with this novel because we can't Based, well, we could come back and read it several times over because of all the images and such like. So what are you hoping the reader's going to go away with? Well, I hope the reader will find themselves immersed in a world that, you know, touches them. Um, you, know, you know, as I was saying before, as, um, you know, an entertaining story, something that thrills and that moves them in those kinds of ways, but also that moves towards, you know, a sense of their soul, understanding of the world. I think ideally, we're, we're as writers, we're looking to create a complete novel, and a complete novel is one that is cohesive in all of those human elements. It's cohesive as a it... story, as a drama, but also as something that is um, has a kind of revelation or an epiphany for um, the sensitive or um, insightful reader. I would also add poetic as well, because mm. it will allow the reader to come back to it multiple times, because these images will echo. I've been interviewing Alec Patrich about his latest novel, Atlantic Black. And over to you, Jan. Who's your Miles Franklin winner? <laughs> well, I've got Alex Miller here. Yeah, he's won two. Yeah, and Alex, you're just won one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Alec is going to win a few more. The way you talk about writing. Thank you. Oh, we're going to get on to that. Look... Alex Miller has given us a monster of a book. It's nearly 600 pages, and instead of The Passage of Love, it could be, be called The Stadium of Love. Welcome back, Alex. Now, your Thanks, book... Thanks, Jan. Um, sorry I didn't think of that title. That's a good one. <laughs> Stadium, Stadium of Love. Of love. Yeah, it sounds pretty hedonistic, uh, <laughs> Roman. 
Oh, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh. We should build Robert one. Crofts is a young Englishman who has worked as a stockman in far north Queensland and arrives in Melbourne. Now, Alex Miller, Robert Crofts has a very similar background to your own. No, he has the same background. It's okay. A, look, um, 90 years ago this year, Virginia Woolf published her beautiful masterpiece, To the Lighthouse. And she was immediately confronted with, hang on a second, this is not um, a novel. This is just you and your family down there at that house of yours on the coast. It's not really fiction, is it? So she drew breath, stood to her full height, which was considerable, and in her haughtiest and most commanding and authoritative voice, she said, it's fictional autobiography. There you go. There so you go. I thought, fuck it. That'll do me. <laughs> well, look, we're reading, I'm reading about Robert Cross and then Zam Bam, about 150 pages I mean, you've in, only got I a... come to an I. And, you know, we, we move yeah. from uh, Robert Cross into first person. No, we move from first person into Robert Cross. Oh, we do. No, we go, to, we go to two chapters in the first person. The old man, me, now, 80-year-old man, the old writer, looking back at his youth and looking back at that bloody idiot back there who was him then, the third person, the person with no prescience, no sense of the future. How could he have? He was driven by his emotions and passions and hopes and dreams, as we all were. Many of us still are. Many of us are still stupid enough to have that energy flowing through us. Look, but, I'm going to <coughs> skip right now because we can read about Robert Crofts and you. I was going to talk about, you know, the, the, the stages in Robert Crofts' life, but I think the whole writing, the writing process of how Robert Crofts or Alex Miller becomes a writer, and especially having um, A.S. Patrick here, we can talk about that because it is fascinating. I want to jump right to Wendy, who um, your first experience, sexy experience with an older woman who taught you a lot, but also said, you've, you've got to, you know, it's your duty to write. And then you get on the meet with John Morris, who sort of gives you She was that. part of the fiction. Was she? Mm. Oh, was that Look, sex part of the fiction too? That was yeah, pretty hot. Yeah, no, I mean, you're treating it as a memoir or, or as a um, autobiography. And I've already told you, it's fictional Fiction. autobiography. Okay. And I don't know a writer. I don't know any serious writers who don't use their own experience in their own life. This is 13 years <coughs> of a life I led over 50 years ago. Mm. What am I now? 80. I was 22 when this book starts. What's that? It's, uh, I don't know, it's around 60 years anyway. And, um, yeah, I mean, this whole question of confusing the writer with the writing, um, Helen Garner, in, in her beautiful novel, The Spare Room, went through a bloody weeks of this business of, yes, but that's not a fiction, that's just you down there in Adelaide when you get a phone call. Exactly, yes, look, it's a novel. I said it's a novel. V.S. Naipaul's Enigma of Arrival, The Coming Into Being of a Writer. He leaves his wife out of it. So, and writes on the first edition of the first hardback, a novel, just in case anybody's confused. Oh, okay. It's not so confusing. It's well, a novel. It's a novel. Well, I don't know what's And don't talk about me. A- I'm not Robert. Robert is Robert. Robert is Robert. I'm me. Okay, we have, this, about, we have the Martin same Block? story. On the back of the book, on the, um, the blurb on the back, it says that I've 
written my life as a fiction. Mm. It's not my life. It's 13 years of my life. But still, it's a fiction, mate. Okay. Martin Block, is he a fiction? Of course. He's a fictionalised oh, version of, of Max Blatt. Anybody who knew Max and Ruth Blatt will recognise Martin and Birta as those people. And I was at a thing at the Avenue Bookstore the other night and the woman came up to me and said, I want you to sign this book for Anne from Alex. Anne was Lena. She's an old Melbourne person who knew those people yeah. and knew my first wife, oh. which I'd love to do. I mean, when I'm in Melbourne... I'm in the home of this stuff. Mm. Whereas um, Michael Reynolds, who lives in New York and is the editor-in-chief of um, Europa, writes, he doesn't know me. He's not a Melbourne guy. He's never, never read the book before. And he says, oh, I was totally, I love this book. Um, it's a masterpiece. I want to make an offer on it. You know, so... I mean, you just got to step a little way away from Melbourne, as you do with Helen too, and other people I know intimately mm. and well, good friends, who um, get this in Melbourne endlessly, um, confusing the writer with the piece because there are so many. It, it is, it is me. Of course, it's me. It's me using those thirteen years. I've always wanted to write about mm. them. Steph's my wife, who for some reason, uh, best known to herself is going through all my um, diaries the last 40-odd years. She gets to know me quite well and my past in that way. And she said, oh, no, you've been trying to write this book for at least 30 years, mm -hmm. but you didn't have the detachment of old age. You needed that to look back on your youthful crimes and times as a third person, a he, him, that silly idiot down there who made all those awful mistakes and who stepped into the fire unknowingly, which he doesn't do anymore, does he? Doesn't you know? he? So that's right. the construction of the book, of the fiction. Most of it is totally autobiographical. I'm happy to admit that. But there are foldings in time that allow things to happen, not when they really happened, but when they happen in this narrative. I mean, as any writer knows, it's not what to put in, it's what to leave out. And as a barrister knows, at the end of a long, complex trial, and she, she has her 20 minutes of summing up, mm. and she looks at the jury, and she knows, if I don't get the story right, the other guy's going to win. And the story is the story of that confusing mass of documentation that the jury's been listening to for six months and hasn't understood a word of it. She's got to get the story of that right. She's got to leave out 99% of it. Well, if you've Something written like anyway. your, your diary many, many times, the story of your life, I know that through this book you've also written that friendship you had with Frankie many different times. And we've seen that in, in some of your earlier books those stories come out too. So it was, it was interesting to know that you had to get away to write those stories. And look, no, anyway, back writing because this is the bit that I really thought was fascinating you really read deeply before you could write you know you well this is the story this is the fiction maybe but um the list of people you read Camus the outsider everybody you know, read Camus 
Have you? Yeah, can you? <laughs> but in my my generation, I mean, Alec and I are from different generations. I could be his father, if not his grandfather. Oh, you were almost my teacher. <laughs> <laughs> really, back at Holmes Glen. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh my God! Wonderful. Well, I, lo- I mean, I love the way you talk about writing. I was just sitting in here listening to it before, and I thought, well, there's a writer talking about the same sort of stuff that I think about all the time. It's exactly the way I think of it too, and trying to sort of, yeah, form that thing. It gets into the deeper level somewhere. Sure. I, I, th- I found your ancestor game to be a really influential book for me, just no, to see an Australian you. writer to be able to to take the book out of Australia, you know, which is something I did with Atlantic Black, and just simply tell a story somewhere where it needs to be told. I thought that was really exciting, and it's a brilliant book too, The Ancestor Game. Well, that was a story about a dear friend of mine too, mm. somebody who'd um, committed suicide actually, Chinese-Australian. Back in the day when being in a Chinese-Australian, I mean, we'd have a beer. He lived out in um, out in the eastern suburbs and we'd go to a pub and have a beer and uh, halfway through the evening, some well-meaning Aussie bloke would come over and say, how long you been here, mate? Look, you're very welcome, mm-hmm. lovely, and uh, how do you like Australia? And Alan, who was perfectly Australian, he was third generation, would say, oh, very nice, thank you, yes. I like Australia very much, it's a good country. And he'd play this role, which he'd been playing all his bloody life. And he knew very well, as I did, being a close friend of his for many years, that those comments could be go either way. They could either be that friendly drunk or they could be that nasty drunk. Mm-hmm. And he lived with that tension, that anxiety, that racism, all his life. So when I wrote it, I loved writing about the Chinese arriving here in 1848. Mm. <laughs> and they've been here ever since. Christ, how long is it going to take, you know, before they become Australians? Mm. A Dutch woman said to me at the Avenue Bookshop the other night, she's a Dutch woman because she migrated here when she was in her 30s. Her daughter, who went to school in Albert Park, She said, I I really worry because they say she's Dutch. And she said, in your book, you said the woman in the the, um, boarding house was Irish. I said, yeah, I know, we do, we say that. My son grew up in South Melbourne with us, with the Greeks and his friends. We called them Greeks. Peter's Greek. Peter was third generation Greek by then, Mm -hmm. you know, but they were Greeks or they were whatever they were. They weren't just Australians. Do we have a moral responsibility then as authors if we're taking uh, real-life events, real people, and then you've got the broader picture of the message behind their experience? But is there a moral responsibility? There's a moral responsibility in everything, in what you're doing right at this minute, as well as there is in what we all do. Absolutely. Whether we're aware of it all the time is another thing. And whether, having become aware of it, we act on it in the right way, that's another thing. Someone said to me yesterday... Do you think we learn from history? I said, yes, we do, but we don't take any notice of what we've learned. We do what's in our best interest at the time. Uh, of course, we learn from history. People often say we learn nothing from history. We learn it. We learn it. And then we just do the same bloody thing again because it's in our interest. The problem is that we keep on forgetting. We need to keep on relearning. Well, we're not moral people. We have a moral aspect to us, which we're aware of. And some people are totally immoral or amoral. I think it's an interesting question, actually. What is our, I think most people have a sense of morality, but we live in a world that ask, asks us to dispose of that morality all the time. Absolutely. And if the world demands us to be amoral, 
as it does, then how do we how can, how can we function? Or is, is that morality a construct of a society pushing forward an ideal uh, that morphs and changes with what uh, society then sees as fit and appropriate? I, I think or that. Is it um, that, uh, that sense of morality is not something that is inspired or generated by religion or organizations. That sense of that, hu- that sense of humanity and that fairness is something that is born from you know hundreds of years of evolution as communities. And as communities, that is the only way we survived. We weren't predators like lions or bears. Our communities are what we as a species are all about. Well, this is what happens when you bring two Miles Franklin winners into Sorry, the studio. Jan, we have your little program got... We've, we've run out of time. You know what? You know what? There's Good. a quote from... I enjoy um, it. Thanks. You must write what you love. Now, this is a character that um, that Alex Miller wrote about, and it's true. I think you have to you have to be embodied with with how you write it. And thank you both for talking about your love of literature. So lovely to be here. I wish we had an hour because uh, we were just getting <laughs> so started. I, I was talking to Alec Patrick about Atlantic Black, and I was speaking with Alex Miller about the passage of love.